The following sermon was preached in the Sunday gathering of First Baptist Church of Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. We pray it bears fruit in your life, and we hope that you share it with others who might also benefit. At the same time, if you're not already, we encourage you to join a faithful local church where you can sit under the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances. Visit firstbaptistwr.com for more information. Father, I pray that you would work powerfully in this sermon and by this sermon. I pray that you would give it force, give it strength, give it legs to do work in this church. Bear witness to the truth by your Spirit and work in us what is pleasing in your sight for your glory in this church. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Proverbs says that where there is no vision, the people perish. So my aim in this sermon is to give this church a vision for the year to come. More specifically, what I want to give you is a vision for a revitalized church and how we can work towards seeing that vision come to fruition in the coming year. Many churches are in sharp decline today. Many are closing their doors. Many are in desperate need of revitalization like ours here. But not all churches out there are in decline today. Many churches, I've visited some of them, they've seen sharp growth in recent years. New churches have been planted, they're growing. They have a vision for a renewed Christian spirituality starting from the ground up. Sinners are hearing the gospel, they're coming to faith in Christ, they're filling up the pews of these once empty churches. There are strong churches out there seeing lively growth in faith, growth in numbers. So the question for this church is not whether we can see new growth, but how we might see new growth and what a renewed church would look like. What is a healthy church? What is a church for? And how might we work towards achieving that vision of a healthy, thriving church in the next year? Our Baptist forebears in the first London Confession of Faith in the 17th century They put forth a vision of a church as a walled sheepfold in a watered garden. Shepherds who pasture their flocks in the open country out in the Middle East, they often would build a sheepfold to help protect their flocks at night. They would build up a short wall encircling a courtyard in the middle, an open space where the sheep could rest. And the shepherd himself would sit in the door to complete that enclosure. The shepherd himself was the door and the gate to keep the predators out, to keep the sheep in. The church is to be a sheepfold. It's imagery that Jesus himself used in John. The elders, the pastors, the overseers are the shepherds who guard that door as Christ's under-shepherds. Primarily, the way pastors do this is by teaching sound doctrine in the church and keeping false doctrine out of the church through correction, exhortation, and rebuke. The church is also to be a watered garden. It's to be an oasis in the midst of the ravages of a dark and chaotic world. So imagine a spring bubbling up in the middle of the desert, an oasis with green grass, cultivated fruit trees, everything in good order in the middle of a desert. A place of order, life, and goodness, a refuge, a wellspring of life, renewal, and peace. The church is to be a place of refuge where you get a 
foretaste of the river of the water of eternal life. The church is to be an imperfect, imperfect for sure, but unmistakable Eden that points forward to that perfect Eden, which is to come. A place where the word of Christ dwells richly in all wisdom. We teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. A walled sheepfold, a refuge from danger, a watered garden, a wellspring of life. A church like that is compelling, it's attractive. There's a magnetism to it. It's attractive to those who have a taste for it. It gives life, it's growing, it's prospering. It draws people in. And once people taste that kind of fellowship in that kind of church, they want more. They want to come back. They don't want to leave. So what does it take to reach this ideal of a walled sheepfold, a refuge in a dark and dying world, a watered garden, that place of renewal and life, a place where believers are built up and encouraged in their faith? And more and more are added to our number day by day and week by week. Can we see that vision come in our time? Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said he will build his church. And he hasn't stopped building just because it's 2024. The church is growing and spreading throughout the world, even in places that have been dark for a long time. Does Christ want churches to grow even in 2024? Jesus said in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Jesus chose us believers. He chose us and appointed us that we should go and bear fruit. He wants us to grow in our faith. He wants us to blossom and bear fruit. So if we have faith, Christ wants us to grow in our faith and bear fruit. And if we're growing in our faith together as a church, we should see, over time, growth in numbers as we bring others to faith by spreading the gospel. So what does that kind of church look like exactly? What is a thriving church, one in which members are growing and prospering, numbers are growing and prospering? What kind of church has God been pleased to add to day by day in the past? If we look to the book of Acts, probably no church was ever quite as effective and bountiful and powerful in their fruit and in their growth as the early church in Acts. In the immediate context to our passage, Peter had just preached a sermon and baptized 3,000 people in one day who gladly received his message. 3,000 people added to the church in one day who he baptized. And then after that, this is the description of the church to which those souls were added. Acts 2.42 They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And wherever there's been a Christian community, a Christian fellowship throughout the world in all time, those elements at least are present. The apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. That was what church life was like. Those are the practices that define the church in those times. And when the church fit that description, then verse 47, a couple of verses later, says, 
the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So this is a picture of a thriving church. It's the kind of church everybody wants to see, people want to be part of, people want to see God work. In the NFL, when a certain team is successful, they go to the Super Bowl, win the Super Bowl, everybody tries to go and copy their playbook. It's a copycat league, they say. Everybody wants to figure out what they did. Well, this church in Acts is winning the Christian equivalent of the Super Bowl. They're seeing fruit, they're prospering, they're growing, they're making disciples. Christ is building his church, he's adding to the church. So let's take a closer look at their playbook and see what we might learn from them. Let's look at the first part of verse 42. This church that the Lord was adding to was a church that continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Other translations say they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. And that word doctrine just means teaching. Doctrine just means teaching. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which means they held fast to the apostles' teaching. They loved sound doctrine. And at that time, the apostles were still alive, and if you wanted to, you could go listen to them teach. The New Testament wasn't written yet, and they were preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Well, today we have the New Testament and we hold that the New Testament contains the substance of what the apostles taught about Christ. And we believe the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. It doesn't replace it, but it does fulfill it. It makes clear what was veiled in the Old Testament. The New Testament is the key that unlocks the meaning of the Old Testament. So for us to be devoted to the apostles' teaching is to be devoted to sound teaching of Scripture after that pattern of sound words that the apostles gave us, their pattern of teaching. Now notice that I said devoted to the sound teaching of Scripture. It is good to be devoted to Scripture and teaching from Scripture, but this passage says that the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching of Scripture. Now, if you remember, the apostles were not the only ones teaching the Bible in that time. You might remember Jesus' contentions with the Pharisees, the Sadducees. There were also another group, the Essenes, out in the desert at that time. There were different groups that all had their own different interpretations of Scripture. And while we might commend the Pharisees in one sense for their zeal for Scripture, their interest in Scripture, their devotion to the Scriptures... We would not say that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They rejected the apostles' teaching very clearly and obviously. So we don't say that they were Christians, even though they had an interest in the Scriptures. They poured over the Scriptures. They memorized every jot and tittle. They studied. They copied the Scriptures. They searched them. And yet Jesus, our Lord, said to them, You search the Scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Pouring over the scriptures. Rejecting the Christ revealed in the scriptures when he's standing right in front of them. 
Paul said in Romans 10.2 of his countrymen, the Jews, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So they had some sort of a devotion to God in one sense, but in a way that Paul says was ignorant, such that they rejected the true meaning of Scripture. Like Paul in his earlier days, remember, he persecuted the church of Christ. Even though Paul was a very educated man, thoroughly immersed in the Scriptures, he rejected Christ. In a misguided zeal for Scripture and for God, he persecuted the church. And Israel rejected their own Messiah, though they were well acquainted with the Scriptures. Jews claim to believe the Bible. They reject the apostles' teaching about Christ. Muslims claim to believe the Bible, even though they say it's corrupted in its current form and unreliable. But they reject the apostles' teaching about Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses claim to believe the Bible, but they reject the apostles' teaching. They teach works righteousness. They teach Arianism. Mormons claim to believe the Bible, but they add to it the Book of Mormon. And yet they reject the apostles' teaching. My point is that reading the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Saying you believe the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Teaching the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Believing the apostles' teaching of Scripture makes you a Christian. In the Reformation, there was this big debate over which church was holding to the apostles' doctrine, which church had held to it throughout the ages, which one was getting it right. Was it Roman Catholicism, or was it the Protestant churches? And Rome told the Protestants, you started your own church. You've gotten into novelties. You've made up things out of your own head. You thought you could just go into your closet with your Bible and teach a doctrine that's never been taught before. And the Protestants shot back and they said, actually, we're the ones that are holding the traditional doctrine. We're the ones who have held the apostles' doctrine that has been passed down throughout the ages. You're the ones splitting away, forming a new church. You're the ones who have gotten into novelties and strayed from the right way. The Protestants' argument was not, nobody's ever taught this before, but this is what Scripture says, and so you should believe us. They said, we can show that what we've taught has been taught throughout the ages, that it is scriptural, and it's also what leading Christian teachers have taught throughout the centuries. So it wasn't, you have the tradition and we have Scripture. It was, we have both on our side. We own both of them. And they sought to show that even though there's much diversity in Christian teaching, nobody gets it all right all the time, but there is always this one main stream of teaching that Christians through the ages have held to if they were truly Christians. And you might call that a universal or Catholic Christian teaching, if you will bear with me. It's the commonplace that is always there. You find it in Jerome, Chrysostom, Augustine, Anselm, Bernard of Clairvaux, down through the ages. And when you boil it down, what is that doctrine on which the church stands or falls? I've said it time and time again. Justification by faith alone. Declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. 
You boil it down. That is what the apostles taught in the simplest terms. That's what they taught. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the Christ who is revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. When you begin to stray from that, you are beginning to stray from the church. You're not a Christian then, if you stubbornly persist in that. Even if you study the Bible, you're adamant, I'm a Christian, you're rejecting the apostles' teaching. A healthy, thriving church is devoted to this teaching. Devoted to a pattern of sound teaching handed down by the apostles. And this year, in this church, let's devote ourselves to that sound teaching, that pattern of sound words handed down by Paul, Peter, the other apostles. A church must be devoted to sound teaching, not just any Bible teaching, but sound teaching, a pattern of sound words. So I'm challenging you this year to grow in your knowledge of God's word, grow in your ability to discern between true and false teaching. Read scripture. Pick up some of those documents we have in the back. Pick up a Baptist catechism. Pick up that confession of faith from those Baptists. Learn something about the historic creeds of the church, which they wrote to defend the true meaning of Scripture. Read church history. Read the best of the Reformers, if you have the time, if you have the inclination. They'll help you grow in your understanding of Scripture. The doctrine of Scripture alone doesn't mean only Scripture and nothing else. We should always check their work, test their arguments. Scripture is that final standard of authority. But we will impoverish ourselves if we refuse to stand on the shoulders of giants and learn from them, look over their shoulders, see what they taught. A healthy church is a church zealous for sound doctrine that divides between truth and error. A church that is not devoted to sound doctrine is a church that is about to be dead. Now, if we think about wanting to add people to our number, adding people to our church, think about it from God's perspective. If we have a bunch of different teachings going around in this church that are contrary to each other, a new believer comes in very impressionable. They don't know all these doctrines. They don't understand good teaching. They just know, I believe in Christ. He saved me. And they start hearing this person say this thing, this person say this thing, this person say this thing. They don't know who's right. They don't know how to discern. They get confused. They get discouraged. They get hurt. They start to despair. God does not want that for new believers. So church, the challenge is for us to have the same mind, believe the same teaching. Correct those who believe to the contrary. Speak the truth in love. Build up this church. Have the same mind. 
the same teaching. So that church, growing in Acts, was devoted to the apostles' teaching. And they also continued steadfastly in the fellowship. So the apostles' teaching establishes a fellowship, a community, a communion in the blood of Christ. We all become partakers in the body and blood of Christ when we believe the gospel. Peter, priests, and those who believed were baptized into a church or a fellowship of believers. They didn't all have their own personal Jesus. They didn't all believe in their own way. They didn't all have their own version of Jesus. I'm following this Jesus. I'm following this Jesus. I'm following Paul. I'm following Peter. It was the same Christ that they believed in. It was a fellowship devoted to that same basic doctrine of the apostles, that teaching about Christ. So it's a common faith that establishes our fellowship. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. It's important when we say Jesus or when we say Christ, we mean the same Christ. What do I mean by that? Let's say I invite you over to dinner. I say, hey, come on over for dinner after church. We're having pizza. You like pizza? So you're like, all right, I'm in. I'm going to be there. And you show up for dinner. You come in my house, and I plop something down on your plate, but it's not pizza. It's a roast squirrel. (laughs) And you say, I thought we were having pizza. What is this? (laughs) And I say, that is pizza. You say, that's not pizza, that's a roast squirrel. I can still see the tail, I can see the teeth. I say, no, that's pizza. And I'm, I'm stubborn about it. And you're going to say, now either this guy is insane, he's a liar, or he is completely clueless when it comes to the English language. That is not a pizza. And you'd probably get upset with me, you'd probably get angry. Now imagine if that happens with the word Christ, or if that happens with the word faith in the church. You think that might cause some confusion, some division? Some people might get upset. Words matter. Ideas matter. We have to mean the same thing when we say the same word. And there is no real fellowship in the church if we don't believe the same things. We have to partake of the same Christ. Teaching, the word of God, establishes the fellowship, not the other way around. The word is what gives birth to the church. The proclamation of the word, accurate teaching, sound teaching, believing that same teaching, that creates a fellowship. The fellowship does not establish the teaching. Then you can teach whatever you want and still have a fellowship. So the question is not, do you believe the Bible? You should believe the Bible. The question is, what do you believe the Bible teaches? And do we, each one of us, one another, share that belief? If I say, come on over, let's listen to some Christian teaching, and I show up there, and you've got Kenneth Copeland in your living room, Joel Osteen, could name a lot of others, 
I'm going to be confused. We're going to probably have to have a conversation. That's not the apostles' teaching. That's not that pattern of sound words that they handed down to us. It's not. It just isn't. It's not to say they don't say true things. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. A broken clock is right twice a day. But that's not the apostles' teaching. It's having the same faith that gives us fellowship. So this year, this is one reason I want to teach membership classes. We don't give the right hand of fellowship in this church to anyone. We're Christians. We fellowship with other Christians, and that's for us. We're a Baptist church. So we want to make sure our newcomers are Baptists. They believe what Baptists believe, and that that belief is genuine. We want to make sure new members know what our fellowship is about, what we expect, help them to integrate into this body, to feel welcome, to be encouraged in their faith. They don't feel left out. And even if you're already a member, I would encourage you to go to these classes if we, once we have them, Lord willing, at some point this year. The intent here is shoring up these walls, the walls of this sheepfold. Encircle those walls. Make sure they're sturdy. And to let that spring gush forth in this church. Clear out those irrigation ditches. Open them up. Bring fresh growth. So the early church devoted themselves to the fellowship. They formed a community of those who believed the same gospel of Christ. They're all washed in the same blood, washed in the same waters in baptism. And they all became partakers of that one body. They ate from the same table. They ate the same food. This verse says they broke bread together. Other places said they broke bread together house to house. But throughout the Bible, eating together at the same table, it's a sign of peace, a sign that you're making a covenant together. There's good relations there. There's no hostility. You're eating together. You're having close fellowship. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. People drawn from all kinds of places. They look different. They had different upbringings. Maybe they've believed different things before they've come to the church. But by Christ, we're all baptized into that same body. We believe the same gospel. And by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have peace with God. If we have peace with God, then we can have peace with one another. If you've been forgiven, then you can forgive other people. We can ask for forgiveness. The early church was defined by peace amongst the members. They were breaking bread together. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one. So I want to ask this morning, are you at peace with the members of this church? Or are there unsettled scores? Do you have an axe to grind? Do you need to ask forgiveness? Do you need to repent of something? A pattern of sin? Do you have a bitter spirit, an unforgiving spirit towards someone? Colossians 3.13 says, Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must forgive. 
We can and we must forgive and ask for forgiveness. When a church believes these things and speaks the truth out of love, it forms a compelling community. We have a common value, a common mission, a common savior, a common belief, a common story of redemption. That's salty. That's something that shines. It's a city on a hill. This year, let's devote ourselves to true fellowship, not just superficial, but a true fellowship. Share a table. Share a common faith. A fellowship purchased by the blood of Christ, founded on truth, founded on grace and forgiveness, devoted to the apostles' teaching in the fellowship. Now this growing church also devoted themselves to prayers. I've preached on prayer already this year. I believe prayer is the mightiest weapon that this church can wield as we seek to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We can do nothing apart from God's help, so we better ask him to help. Prayer is the engine of any ministry. James 4.2 says, We do not have because we do not ask. And prayer is the language of a church eager to see God work. And when a church is crying out, consistently pouring out their heart, requesting that God would do his will on earth as he does in heaven, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's already at work. That's already God's work. And in one sense, a church that is praying like that is already a revived church. It's already a vital church when we begin to pray like that. So a church devoted to the apostles' teaching, holding to the same faith, serious about good teaching, devoted to fellowship and breaking bread, a forgiven and forgiving people, praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what defined the early church in the book of Acts. That's the kind of church the Lord was adding to day by day, those who were being saved. Now, church, we can be that kind of church by God's grace. I want to tell you a story along those lines. So Brian, Pastor Brian, who was here a couple weeks ago, he told a story in one of his emails about a church in Minnesota. He works with a bunch of these churches. He wrote that in 2001, Jim Johnson, who was a part-time farmer and full-time manager of a seafood processing plant, he began attending a tiny free Methodist church. There were eight people left, eight people, and he started attending. The pastor at the time asked Jim if he would help. Jim, will you help? And they felt they must say, yes, they would help. We will help. So, lo and behold, four months later, the pastor suddenly resigned. God, the departing pastor and the conference superintendent, decided that Jim, who was asked to help, should take the pastor's place, even though he had no training and no experience being a pastor. Imagine that. (laughs) Not having any idea of what to do next, they prayed a lot. And God showed up. The church grew. Jim, with the heart of a servant, an evangelist, worked hard. He prayed harder. He started doing dozens of funerals for unchurched people. After four years, he left his management job and became a full-time pastor. In their little old building, 
was replaced with a newer building, which was more than doubled in size a few years later. Today, this church is averaging almost 300 people in attendance on Sunday mornings, and that is in a village of less than 600 people. That's pretty impressive. Church, we are not sufficient for the tasks that God has given us, but God is more than sufficient. God can do anything. Nothing is impossible for him. Now imagine that for this church. Families streaming in on a Sunday morning, children laughing, playing with their friends, maybe causing a little trouble. Hearty worship loud enough to lift these rafters on this building, like my uh, old Sunday school teacher used to tell me. She wanted us to lift the rafters off of this church. (laughs) People encouraged in their faith, seeing God work, seeing people come to faith and wanting to see him do more, lingering for fellowship, sharing meals throughout the week, kids learning to faith, coming to faith, seeing baptisms, hearing testimonies of how God has worked in these new believers' lives to draw them to faith. Babies bouncing on mother's knees. Adults being trained up, learning in classes. Training up leaders. Sending them out to plant new churches. Seeing this town restored, renewed, transformed by the gospel. As that story shows, God can work very quickly when he wants to. Brian also shared another little anecdote on his blog. He shared about the surprising secret to church growth. And he said this church guru came in to speak at a conference, and everybody was just waiting with bated breath to hear what this great new secret to church growth was. And he showed up late. People were kind of upset that he was late, but he said this won't take long. The secret is nothing I've written about all these years. He said, the secret is, there's a big sign on the roof of the church, like one of those neon signs you might see out by a motel. There's a big flashing neon sign on the roof of the church. Everybody can see it, except the members of the church. Only outsiders can see this, the regular members of the church can't see it. And it's always on, it's always flashing. Now if a church is healthy, if people are right with God, people are right with each other, the sign says, come in here. Come in here. It's on, it's flashing. If the church isn't healthy, God doesn't want unbelievers and new Christians getting confused or hurt by attending there. So he turns on another word on the sign. There's another word up on on the top. You've seen those motels. Light up that other word on the sign. It says no. That other word on this sign says don't. Don't come in here. Don't come in here. Don't come in here. And if that sign says don't come in here, there's nothing that you can do to compensate for that. Nothing. Brian wrote, you can have the best preacher, the best worship band, the nicest building, the best ministries in the community. You can forget 
All of that stuff, that sign on the roof says that. And it doesn't matter how long it takes or how much pain and trouble it takes you to get to where God can change the sign on the roof. When a church is right with God, when the sign on the roof says the right thing, a church can grow remarkably quickly. Years of empty pews and empty coffers can be compensated for and forgotten in a few short, wonderful months. But don't ever think that you can get away with having the sign on the roof say the wrong thing. He said, that's it. That's the secret. There are no shortcuts. There's no silver bullet. There's no secret sauce. In this year, let's devote ourselves to the pattern of sound words given by the apostles, handed down to us by those mainstream Protestant reformers, the best of the Reformation, Let's devote ourselves to fellowship, forgiving, being forgiven, getting right with God, getting right with each other. Let's devote ourselves to prayer, serious prayer. Prayer is the engine of a church. Work to make this truly a walled sheepfold, a watered garden. That's something different. That's something the world needs. That's compelling. When a church is different from the world, it's salty, compelling. And that's something we want to bring others into. And church, lay down your lives for the gospel, for the sake of Christ. Share the gospel as you have the opportunity. Be inviting friends, family, neighbors to church. Pray for them. Pray for your neighbors. Try to start conversations, start with a relationship, introduce yourself. We have good news that people need to hear. And there is eternal life for all who believe. So think about ways that you can be telling people about that eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make it so. There aren't any perfect churches out there, but we can all be doing what we can to grow to grow in grace, to grow in knowledge, to grow in love, to grow in holiness and in faith. Help us to step out and do those things we've been afraid to do. Make us more like that church that you want us to be. Please be gracious and kind to us and build us up in our faith and build up this church and bless our work. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.